Welcome to Let's Talk, a podcast series by the Electrochemical Safety Research Institute at Underwriters Laboratories. In the Let's Talk podcast series, we share conversations with experts and scientists in the field of energy storage systems, safety science, and standards, and learn about their experiences and vision. Batteries are ubiquitous in our daily lives, powering personal electronic devices to electric vehicles. These batteries are also used to store energy from the grid and power plants that can be used later. In combination with renewable energy sources such as solar and wind, batteries can provide cleaner energy source and can address the intermittent nature of solar and wind energy. To talk more about battery energy storage systems, our guest today is Sharon Bonestill. Sharon was awarded the 2021 Breakout Woman of the Year from the Energy Storage Association for her work on ESS safety training. She is a senior policy analyst, manager, codes and standards initiative at the Salt River Project or SRP, where she leads SRP's ESS codes and safety team. She's a licensed architect in Arizona and California, an ICC certified building official, a commercial energy inspector, and an Arizona Certified Fire Inspector. Sharon serves as SRP's voting representative to the NFPA and ICC code development process. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to, welcome to the Let's Talk podcast, and thank you for accepting our invitation to have this conversation. Happy to be here, Tapesh. You have quite an extensive list of qualifications and responsibilities. Can you please talk about some of the work you do in the area of energy storage systems? Sure, I'd be happy to. We, we really are at an exciting stage in the development of energy storage systems. And I, you know, my interest has just grown and grown over the years. Um, my work involves many aspects from the development of codes and standards at the national level to developing best practices for the safe deployment of the batteries in our built environment, and also looking at uh, de safe deployment for SRP's transmission and distribution systems. Um, my codes and safety team includes a great group of people from across SRP, and we're looking at the impact of batteries on our overall utility operations. And this includes helping out whenever we can on various studies and pilot studies and deployments that are going on. Uh, this may be a one megawatt battery at a substation or setting up a test facility to look at batteries for electric vehicle fast charging stations. Or one of our last big things was assisting with the deployment of 34 Tesla megapacks at our Agua Fria generating plant. And we're an enterprise team, which means we're bringing people from across the company together. We're identifying issues and developing solutions, um, all as SRP evaluates the benefits to our customers of energy storage system and other inverter-based resources on our grid. So I'm happy to be here to talk with you. That's great. So uh, you explained quite a bit uh, of diverse applications. So I wanted to ask you, Batteries are often long together despite many chemistries such as lead acid, lithium ion, redox flow, and other chemistries. For applications in energy storage systems, 
what are some of the param parameters you look at when choosing the right battery energy storage system? Well, I think, you know, I have to quote one of my mentors, uh, horses for courses, or as they say in the real estate business, the first parameter is location, location, location. Um, you know, where, where do you plan to install that battery is the first big question. Um, we're doing a lot of training for first responders at, at our installations and making sure you understand where that battery is in terms of the surrounding uh, community or whether it's in a building, that's really critical. And some battery types have been around for years. You know, They've been utilized in uninterrupted power systems or UPS applications and they're safe and they're reliable. They're big and heavy and they have a large footprint. Um, right now, lithium ion batteries are they're the sexy answer. They're energy dense, they're lightweight, and they have several positive attributes. And everybody wants to go automatically to lithium ion, but um, it also has some fire hazard challenges. So, you know, we have new lithium ion chemistries, uh, NMC, the zinc. Uh, some of the iron batteries, solid electrolyte batteries are being developed, and they're all looking to solve that fire hazard issue associated with some of the original lithium ion. And the second parameter I have to say is, how do you plan to use it? Is it planned for peak shaving or for emergency backup? You know, cycle life is really critical for your cost effectiveness if you're doing peak shaving where you're going to be constantly charging and discharging. So you need batteries that, that can handle that. In more of a UPS use, you know, maintenance cost might be really critical or maybe duration, but you know, those batteries have to sit for long periods of time in a float sort of scenario. And then they must be there when you need them. So the two parameters I think are most important are the location on where you're going to put the install the battery and second, you know, how do you plan to use it? That's great. So uh, that leads to my next question you have. As you mentioned, some of the advantages of battery energy storage, energy storage systems is in providing flexibility based on demand and integration with renewables. Those are exciting advantages, right? So what are some of the hurdles that need to be addressed for wider adoption of battery energy storage for grid applications? Well, I think our grid in general is becoming more engaged with inverter-based resources. And those old models for supply and demand, they're outdated. And new models that account for things like electric vehicles, uh, whether they're charged at home or, or at work or on a fast charger, uh, models that account for solar, wind, and other renewable resources are being developed. They're, they're not totally fleshed out yet. Um, but thank God we have computers to manage all of that, those generation sources so we can deploy them in the best manner. What we have found so far, I think, is that Energy storage systems will play a big role in addressing the, the dip or the ramp, whatever you want to call it, that, 
that transition between when these intermittent generation resources are operational and when they're not. Um, SRP customers still want generation capacity even when it's a cloudy day. So that energy storage is really critical. We, we want to make sure we have uh, the most reliable energy available for our customers. And that's, that's going to be answered by batteries. Okay, great. And uh, I want to ask you about uh, utilizing batteries from applications such as electric vehicles after they have reached their end of life, end of life for that particular application. So these batteries could have lost up to 20% of their original capacity, but they still have quite a lot of energy that can be useful for alternative applications, right? So what are some of the issues that need to be taken care of to make it more applicable, to make it more appealing for uh, such second life applications for used batteries? Well, think about what you would like to know if you were buying a used car. You know, get to Carfax. Was it in an accident? Was it driven by a race car driver or the little old lady from Pasadena or was it just driven to church in the grocery store? Has it been well-maintained? You know, it gets its checkup, it gets its oil change. You know, these are the same kind of issues with Second Life batteries. You know, as, as a purpose, as a person who is repurposing a battery, I want to know the answers to those same questions. Now, UL standard 1974, the standard for evaluating the safety and performance of repurposed batteries is, is a good guide uh, to determine the safety and performance of a second life battery. So finding appropriate end of life solutions, whether that is a second life or deconstruction is an important task for our battery-based economy. And again, a lot of it has to do with what's the, what's the battery been through in its life up to this point? And that tells you a lot about whether it's going to be proper for your future use, so. And people are installing energy storage systems in homes. Although it is minimal, there are risks of safety incidents resulting from, resulting from fire, right? So do you think existing codes and standards do a good job at addressing safety risks associated with energy storage systems used in residential spaces? Or are there any gaps that you would like to see addressed? Well, one of the things to keep in mind is that the codes and standards are updated every three years. And that just isn't fast enough to keep up with the changing battery technology. Um, then you need the states or the local jurisdictions to adopt these codes and standards and, and put them into uh, law. And that, and that usually takes another two years. Some of these jurisdictions are going to adoptions every six years, which, which creates an even worse situation with all these new technologies. So I think adopting the most current codes is very, very critical. Another item is that people need to realize that the battery may not be the cause of the fire. 
but once it's engaged, it, it still creates the same kind of hazards as if it was a cause. Now, uh, we put sprinkler systems in single family homes into the residential code. And there are a lot of jurisdictions that pulled those requirements out when they adopted the code. So it really it comes down to um, making sure you're on the latest codes and standards. Um, and I think we all still need to work at getting to the point where we have uh, listing and labeling that is similar to what we have on stoves or on furnaces um, where we're talking about exact installation guidelines that really get detailed in terms of the safe, de safe deployment of those particular storage systems in the single family residence. Because, you know, you don't always have the same kind of staff readily available to maintain and, and take care of a battery. And even if you do have an incident in your home that's not caused by the battery, what happens to the battery afterwards? Are, you know, are the customers asking those questions? And is there actually somebody out there doing the follow-up on those batteries after the incident? So I think there are some gaps, most certainly. That's interesting. And uh, there are, as you notice, uh, occasional safety incidents affecting battery energy so, uh, storage systems, like the Arizona incident and other incidents that occurred with ESS installations in South Korea and Australia. You are a certified fire inspector as well. Are there any parallels you see when studying battery fire incidents from energy storage systems? Very interesting question. Um, I, I think the first point is the quality workmanship always matters, whether it's in the cell manufacturing process, the pack fabrication, uh, the wiring within the system or the wiring of the completed system. If you have low quality workmanship, um, you have a higher risk of an incident occurring. And I, along with that, quality workmanship is also quality materials. <clears throat> Are you using uh, uh, conductors with, with the right ratings on them? Um, and we really need to invest in this country in making sure that the labor associated with an energy storage system reliant economy is, is well-trained. Have they had the kind of training necessary to uh, make sure that they are doing quality workmanship on these installations? I think the second point is <clears throat> right along those same lines, education, communication, and pre-incident planning. When all the parties are educated in the risks and hazards and they're trained in the proper emergency response activities, then we're all a lot safer. And uh, I think looking at the incidents you identified, those were key factors that 
will make a difference going forward in terms of safer energy storage system deployment. Thank you. And I want to ask you about uh, responding to fire incidents, right? So let's say there is a fire. So what are the uh, current level of prevention methods and mitigation methods, as well as firefighting measures that are available to treat those incidents, and are they sufficient? Well, I, I think, you know, when you're talking about minimizing safety incidents, first of all, you have to choose the right battery for the job. Um, you know, putting a uh, putting a battery that has a high probability of, of having a thermal incident and next door to a daycare center is not a very smart decision. Um, so first of all, make sure you've got the right battery for the job. Not every job needs the same kind of chemistry. Um, second, that whole development and communication of the emergency response plan with all the parties involved is, is extremely critical. Part of the current issue is making sure that all first responders are, are fully educated in what the proper response techniques are. So, you know, the initial training of what a thermal incident is and what thermal runaway is and the fact that water will not put out a lithium ion fire those key factors have to be the foundation for some continuing education on what the new chemistries are. Uh, as of right now, the water is basically used to cool the, the battery cells um, to prevent the internal heat from uh, transitioning to adjacent cells and resulting in your thermal runaway. You really can't put out the cell uh, fire until all the energy from the battery is cell is gone. Um, there are other non-aqueous uh, sort of suppressants. Each of them has their own advantage and disadvantage. Uh, the thing you need to look at is those quite often are one shot. And if it doesn't fix it in that shot, well, then you kind of need a backup solution. In some cases, if it's not a battery cell that's causing the incident, it's instead uh, a wiring fire, you know, and then some of those non-aqueous systems will put that out and you're good to go. Um, but they don't all put out lithium ion fire. So I think a lot of our attention right now is being focused on gas detection and um, ventilation of cabinets and those sort of areas, because part of the real hazard is if those uh, gases uh, reach the explosive level, then any kind of a spark will set them off. And that's when people really get hurt. So I think minimizing uh, safety instances 
you know, choose the right battery, make sure it's a quality battery, make sure you get a quality installation, um, make sure you follow up and inspect that on a regular basis. And second, develop and communicate your emergency response plan with all the parties because it, it doesn't matter how safe uh, you, you think your battery is. Um, I remember a quote uh, from the gentleman, Hunter Clare, who was injured in the McMicken incident. And his comment to me was, yeah, Sharon, but as a, as a first responder, I show up when all those other safety systems go wrong. So that's kind of how we have to look at this. Have, have we protected ourselves, uh, the surrounding buildings, the people, the first responders in those cases where everything goes wrong? So it's a, it's a sad way to look at things. But on the other hand, if you approach it from, from that standpoint, then you know you have protected the public and protected uh, the building owner and all the parties. So since you mentioned the public, I wanted to ask you, are there uh, certain things or steps the public can take to minimize these incidents and protect themselves? If I had to point to one thing, I'd say talk to your uh, mayor and council, talk to your uh, legislators, and make sure they understand the role that codes and standards play in keeping people safe. I mean, if you think about the fact that every day you go in and out of buildings and you assume they're safe, well, part of the reason they're safe is because those codes and standards have put those building plans and their sprinkler systems and all of the safety things through a rigorous review. And without good codes and standards for uh, building safety, then you have much hazardous situations for people. So that's that I think is one thing people can do. Make sure they're educated uh, before they install any of these systems in their homes and make sure that uh, they have the good codes and standards in place to make sure that buildings are safe. Okay. Thank you so much, Saren. That was great. Thank you for answering all the questions and had a great time uh, talking to you. Thank you. Well, well, this is a really fast-changing industry, so I, I hope we have a chance to talk again in the future because uh, you got to stay on top of all these issues, right? Yeah. It is really important and everything, uh, like you said, the chemistries and uh, the codes, everything is changing so fast and people are utilizing these and often uh, there are incidents occurring because people do not know the risk involved and after that they don't know the right prevention measures and mitigating measures. So it is important that uh, whenever possible we, uh, we help them know of the risk and ways to minimize the risk. Sounds great. Thank you. 